Welcome to the Cynicism Podcast, where we will talk to experts from around the world to help us all better understand China. I am Bill Bishop, and I write Cynicism, a newsletter that helps you get smarter about China. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Joanna Chu, a longtime journalist covering China for both inside and outside the country, co-founder and chair of the editorial collective New Voices, and the author of the new book, China Unbound. She now covers Canada-China issues for the Toronto Star. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on your new podcast. It's very exciting. Thanks. You are the second guest, and so I'm really happy to have this opportunity to speak with you. Before we dig into your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up where you are and doing what you do? Okay. Um, I guess the, my bio gist is that my family was one of the many who left Hong Kong uh, after the 1989 uh, Tiananmen Square protests um, because we were worried. My parents were worried about what would happen going forward. You know, growing up in Canada, I felt that China was actually part of my whole family story because it what happened led to our family uprooting themselves. So I was always really interested in China, um, and you know, studied Chinese history and wanted to return to be a reporter to you know chronicle what was happening in the country, which I was so fascinated by. So. I started reporting on the ground in Hong Kong in 2012, uh, covered all the things that happened there, including Occupy and the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. And I moved to Beijing in 2014, and that's where I started covering basically everything in the whole country uh, for European media outlets, including the German uh, Deutsche Press Agentur and AFP, Agence France Press. And I guess my career was a bit unique in that I also freelanced for several stints. So I got to kind of get a sense of what many different uh, jurisdictions and countries kind of wanted to know about China in my time there writing for all sorts of outlets. Interesting. And so you, I was there until 2015. So I think we overlapped for just about a year. Uh, When did you actually leave China to go back to Canada? Yeah, I left China in late 2018. I wanted to stay for longer because even seven years on the ground, I felt I barely got to scratch the surface of all the things that I could write about in China, especially because I had such a broad remit where I was, you know, a frontline reporter for all of these major events, but also could do basically any feature story I wanted. Um, So really, it was just totally open and I could have stayed there for decades, but I had to go back to Canada. I got like asthma from the smog and I think my like Canadian lungs just couldn't handle (laughs) Uh, the AUI. I was just like really allergic to Beijing as soon as I landed and I stuck it out for four years. But back in Canada, I felt I would have to move on, you know, from my, you know, passion and interest in China. But a couple of months after I returned, Meng Wanzhou, mm-hmm. the Huawei executive, was <laughs> detained in the Vancouver International Airport. And then just over a week later, the two Michaels were detained. So definitely, I think that was the biggest China story at the time. And it continued to be very impactful around the world. So I started covering that and it just led to basically being a reporter for the Toronto Star focusing on China. And that's what I've been doing since then. And I I have also been working on my book uh, since early 2019. So, you know, not in my plan, but definitely in the past decade, it has been very China-focused, including my last few years in Canada. <laughs> it's great. I've always been a fan of your work. And I will say it's very interesting how so many uh, foreign correspondents who used to live in China 
you know, have, have left the country, some, some willingly, some not willingly, mm -hmm. but how it turns out that they all have, or most of them have found jobs covering China, sort of how China's impacting the world, wherever they're actually now based. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good segue into talking about your book, because it really is true that the China story is everywhere now. And that's, I think, something that you try and, and capture in China Bound. So tell us who you wrote it for, why you wrote it, and, and what do you hope that the readers take away from it? So when the whole Huawei Meng Wanzhou saga was unfolding, I got so many questions from, you know, not just Canadian journalists, but just media around the world about what was going on. Um, I think it was it's surprising to us because we've been, you know, in the China watching bubble, but more broadly, what happened was very shocking for a lot of people all over the world. Um, they didn't know the context of, you know, uh, Beijing's political system and its increasing how its authoritarianism translates also into its foreign policy and its stances towards different countries and uh, diaspora groups all over the world. But these things were, you know, not just stories I covered, but stories that were close to my life. Because in growing up, my father worked for a Chinese Canadian radio station and people were talking already then about pressure to self-censor, pressure from the Chinese embassy on Canadian media outlets. Uh, this was happening in the 90s and people of Chinese descent around the world were trying to kind of have discussions about this, but basically not really getting much traction or broader public attention. It, it did seem, I, I will ask you if this is uh, what you felt, but it took, you know, two white men from Canada being taken hostage over this high profile executive's arrest in Canada for a lot of people in the world to be like, wait, what's going on? Like, how will Beijing's political system and authoritarianism possibly impact me and my family or my country or my business? So I, I'm writing this book. I wrote this book for basically everyone targeting the general reader because I really try to be as immediate as possible in my writing. I Most of the reporting is eyewitness reporting uh, from myself and in collaboration with journalists around the world and looking at how we got to this point, like Western countries and China, how we got to this point where there are, it seems like, a lot of obstacles that seem insurmountable, all of these tensions, all of these worries. And I wanted for people to start with this book. And then I provided like this long reading list at the end so they can continue to be engaged in these issues because I really feel that we might not have really noticed, but a lot of the narratives around China and the more of the mainstream public are have been very, very simplified. And that is a disservice to all countries and especially to the people who end up being targets and whose lives end up being affected by some of these big conflicts going on. No, and what you said earlier about really taking the two two white men, the, the Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, to get people's attention is interesting because these pressures have existed, as you said, you're talking about your father and his experience, but these pressures on the diaspora have existed for, for decades. Mm -hmm. they, they've certainly intensified, but... Yeah. I mean, you and you have multiple instances of ethnic Chinese who are jailed in China, American, Australian, yeah. where it, it isn't it, it didn't seem to have sort of captured the national attention the way the detention of the two Michaels did. Mm. That's unfortunate, but it does feel like the conversation or the awareness now has shifted 
And so that there's a there's a lot more awareness that these kind of pressures are existing across all you know all sorts of communities. Also, though, right? I'm telling me I'm wrong, but the Chinese government has also shifted its approach, has it, and sort of widened the net in terms of how they pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the past, you know, the United Front, uh, a lot of that work of foreign influence and both intimidation and providing carrots and sticks, you know, like you know, flattering global politicians and global members of the, you know, elite among the diaspora have been going on. But the more harsh efforts of influence in the past, I think, were mostly directed at people of uh, Asian descent. And it was only in more recent years where, you know, the really harsh tactics, the actual detentions uh, have been applied to foreign nationals who or not of Asian descent, it seems like that is a deliberate shift in tactics. It's also interesting, I think, that when you, when you look at sort of who they've targeted, especially around the, the Meng Wanzhou case, you know, they two Canadians very quickly were arrested. A third Canadian who had been convicted of dealing drugs had a, had a sentence, resentenced <laughs> to death. And there's still no word about um, Schellenberger's fate in the wake of the Meng Wanzhou deal. Yeah. But... One thing that's interesting is they've yet to target Caucasian Americans. Mm-hmm, yeah. And certainly what I was hearing in the Mongwajo incident was that someone had told me they put together lists um, who they might target, but they had held back because I think part of the messaging is they're at least today not quite ready to go toe-to-toe with the U.S., but willing to penalized countries and the citizens of the countries that are seen as as effectively being U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, allies or lackeys, depending on who you're speaking with. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And and my book, people have said it's unique because I'm Canadian and I spotlight countries and experiences like Australia, Italy, Greece, Turkey. So, you know, so-called middle powers, you know, that middle power perspective, whereas many books out of the U.S., on China haven't really from the U.S. perspective. Right, right. I think that's important context for Americans to actually understand because in America, it seems like a lot of it is about this almost like glorious competition with China where the U.S., you know, has to win. I've been kind of like, you know, mortified that people commenting on my book uh, have said things like, we need to read this so that we can win um, and not let China win, uh, things like that. But if they had actually read it, you know, they would have right. probably seen that that's not. I, I, I criticize the West and Western nations handling and attitudes towards China as much as I criticize Beijing's actions. So I would also point out that Australian journalists, you know, who are white were affected. Bill Burroughs and Michael Smith, they spent days like hold up in their um, Australian embassies in yes. China, basically fleeing because they got tipped off that, you know, otherwise they might get detained related to Australia's um, more, you know, aggressive, hawkish, critical stance towards China as of late. Wasn't it also related to the uh, detention of Australian Chinese, mm-hmm. the Australian journalist Chung Lei, who was yes, uh, uh, originally Chinese, then naturalized into Australian citizenship, and she's now disappeared into the system in China, right? Yeah, so Chung Lei, it, it again, like, we don't, she's not a global household name like the two Michaels, uh, right. Chung Lei, uh, but she is actually detained. And again, her case is, we know very little about it, but it seems very clear it's related to the political situation between the two countries. 
and also Bloomberg journalist Hayes Fenn. And, you know, I think actually Hayes's case might be as close as China has gone so far to targeting Americans, because even though a Chinese national, uh, she worked for Bloomberg. She was a prominent right. journalist for Bloomberg. So, yeah, it's interesting because, I don't know, like writing this book, it's I'm trying to provide like this nuance and context for the public, but under so much pressure because the global context is that things are so tense that it could get worse at any moment. And you don't know, like you hearing from your sources about a list that they were preparing of Americans that they could possibly target, like the stakes are so high. Like both of us, like these are people we know. Um, I don't know if you knew Kovrig, but it's it's a relief that he's back. But Not well, but you I know. did know a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like for the more than 1,000 days he was in detention, I was writing this book and just that was always on my mind. And it's so immediate and it's so urgent for more people to understand what's going on rather than, I think, fanning the flames or making things worse or not using the opportunities there are to engage more productively with with China and but you know we see the dialogue on China becoming so toxic right now where it's almost as if there's two camps mm-hmm. and you know the most the more extreme voices on both sides seem to get more airtime and interest and people want those like nuggets of you know talking points on China that I really sympathize like this is how we fight back you know right. rather than the people who are trying to provide a lot more context like it's not as easy as doing this or that to resolve everything and get what you want well one thing you said earlier about sort of we have to win i mean i have yet to see a clear definition of of sort of the the what would we say the the theory of victory and and what it is the other thing i'd say and, and this will lead to my next question is we talk about sort of how you know in many ways how toxic the discourse has gotten um, in the West, it's also incredibly toxic inside China mm-hmm. and in, in very worrisome ways and in many ways, very much sort of state supported, state encouraged ways. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the questions I want to ask you is sort of how we. So first first question really is, as you've talked about in the book and you, you've talked about in other places, you know, this whole discussion around sort of Chinese Communist Party inter- influence or interference in sort of other countries and how we, you know, whether it's through the United Front or other means or other other vectors, how do we differentiate what we should actually, we being the sort of the, the countries in the countries that are that are targeted, how, how should you differentiate what actually matters and people should be concerned with versus that's the normal thing that a foreign government would do to try and improve other countries' perceptions of that country and advance their interests in those countries. And relatedly, as this discussion, the discourse does get more toxic, how do we talk about these things without tipping into racism? Because, you know, at least in the U.S., certainly, we have a really long and nasty history of anti-Asian and specifically anti-Chinese racism. Mm-hmm. And th- there is a, there are a lot of reasons to be very worried about going too far where we end up with, with we're back in a very dark place in terms of mm-hmm. how people of Asian and, and Chinese descent are treated in this country. But at the same time, there are real issues and, and, and potential threats coming from some of these, these PRC activities. So how do we talk about that in a way that effectively sort of deals with the, the problems, but also make sure that people are, are safe and are able to enjoy the rights they deserve mm-hmm. and, and they have? 
Yeah. And that's why I try to provide a lot of that history concisely in each chapter of the book, because we kind of need to know what happened before to, to know to be a lot more careful with our language and our actions now, because definitely it just seems like history is repeating itself during the McCarthy era. Chinese Americans, their loyalties were constantly questioned. They lost their jobs. And now former President Trump has said that he thinks basically all students are possibly Chinese spies. We've seen these prosecutions of certain Chinese uh, national scientists and professors in America that were basically pretty embarrassing. It seemed that yes. you know a lot of those suspicions were unfounded and it was kind of almost like a witch hunt, uh, which is really difficult because when things seem politicized and politically motivated and just you put like a blanket suspicion on all these people, that's exactly what happened in the past. And it's not just America. It was in Canada, Australia, Europe. In Canada, um, we had internment of Japanese Canadians during World War II. Um, and people know that this is in the background. And even before things got more tense, when a lot of the uh, approach of, among Western countries towards China was that the goal was to expand trade ties as much as possible, economic ties as much as possible. You know, there was still a lot of racism <laughs> walking down the street. Like I got called slurs, um, like the C word in, in downtown Vancouver multiple times. Re recently? Throughout my, you know, life <laughs> in living wow. in Canada. In Vancouver, um, particularly, there was a longstanding kind of stereotype of like the crazy rich Asian that... <laughs> Um, you know, was ruining the city with our Maseratis and condo buying. Wasn't there a, there was like a reality show, I think, was it based on uh, rich Chinese yeah. in uh, Vancouver, I think? Yeah, there was that. And, you know, there's a lot of scapegoating against, basically against uh, East Asians for, for lots of problems. And with COVID-19 and with the two Michaels and Huawei, this just really spiked, particularly in countries like Canada, US, Australia, with the large Chinese diaspora in many places. People who weren't even Chinese, like an indigenous woman in Canada, she, she was punched in the face, things like that. It's not like we can throw up our hands and be like, oh, people are just going to be racist. Like this is going to happen. I think a lot of people in positions of influence and politicians need to take responsibility for what they've done to stoke this behavior and not condone it. Like talking to certain politicians in Canada, in the Conservative Party, they tell me that there's been a shift in strategy to talk about China as a Chinese Communist Party, the Communist regime, to deliberately, I think, kind of stir up a red scare. And in the U.S., definitely the FBI in a announcement about one of its investigations into a uh, Chinese-American scientist said the word Chinese communist regime or Chinese communist government like five times. I think that was the announcement about the uh, the MIT professor. Was it uh, Cheng Gong, I think? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah I the, think so. The, the, the prosecutor or the FBI folks up in Boston, I believe. Right, yeah, that was the one. And, you know, it's just not necessary. <laughs> um, you don't need to, like my argument is that the facts about what Beijing is doing are urgent enough, like sobering enough. You don't really need to embellish it with this language of trying to get people scared of um, this communist entity. But perhaps it's more to do with domestic politics in each place where um, someone explained it to me in the U.S. where pretty much everyone is critical of China. You don't really get more attention by just being moderately critical. You have to be 
really like more extreme. It's as if it's like a competition to be as hawkish as possible to get, you know, that acclaim and public support. And, and as you said, I mean, that it's, it's unnecessary because as, as you just said, the facts, you know, can speak for themselves in many areas. And it, mm-hmm. and again, it goes back to how do we have a rational discussion about what the problems and challenges are without like, tipping over into something that's really nasty and scary. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny when you're, when you write about China, you know, I have people who, who, I mean, you know, think I'm a CCP apologist and I have people who think I'm way too hawkish and you just can't, you sort of can't win. Yeah. It's such a, no. it's such a fraught topic that, that it is something I struggle with because you, you certainly don't want to be in a position where you're, you're stirring things up. But at the same time, you can't just throw up your hand and say, well, we're not going to deal with it because you know, it's, it's too dangerous. I mean, it's too dangerous the other way too. Right. Exactly. For, but it's, but it's, it's a really, it's really difficult. And the, the question I have is, do you think sort of the powers of be in Beijing understand this? And is this, is this something that they try and use or leverage? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think so. I think it plays right into what Beijing wants because it's the myth it kind of has been promoting for years is that China is the center of Chinese civilization. Even if you have been, your family's been away from China for generations, you're still Chinese. And since you're still Chinese, you know, your de facto leader is still uh, the CCP. It's a legitimate, you know, power for, you know, all Chinese people. And because like people like me and my family aren't fully accepted as Canadians or as Australians or as Americans, it's always like a hyphen, like Chinese, Canadian, Chinese, American, Chinese. That just plays into what Beijing wants. And when people of Chinese descent are taken as political prisoners or, you know, get calls uh, from Chinese police saying stop supporting Hong Kong on social media or stop doing this, these people get less attention. Um, They're not taken seriously when they try to report what's happening because Unfortunately, a lot of people in the West have accepted the CCP's uh, myth that we're still essentially Chinese. It's in the law, like they don't, if there's dual nationality, they don't accept a second nationality. But even more than that, I still worry that, you know, it's happened to people like me. I actually gave up my Hong Kong citizenship. I'm only Canadian, but just because of my Chinese blood, I'm at greater risk of whatever Mm -hmm. repercussions. And definitely I've been singled out when I was a foreign correspondent in Beijing for, you know, writing too much about human rights. And they did not say the same things about, you know, other people in my office. So by not listening to people in the diaspora and treating them as still outsiders with, with this connection to China, whether we agree or not, that's really playing into it. And also when there's this racism, you know, Chinese state media, uh, Chinese embassies, they've been really upfront about uh, condemning this and using it as a way to shore up loyalty among um, overseas Chinese, especially people who are more recent immigrants, to get that uh, support. There's so many of these China friendship associations all around the world. And it's it's tough to understand their impact because it's all basically legal. They are these groups that openly support Beijing's policies all around the world. And they have, uh, in my reporting, taken part in basically trying to make friends with politicians around the world and using those interviews, those events, those photographs to turn into propaganda to say, 
we got the support from this politician or there were groups that have offered money for people to vote for certain candidates in other countries' elections. It's complicated because when these groups are alienated, when they still feel that for on a pragmatic level, it makes better sense for them to have good relations with, you know, Beijing, these groups are going to increase and proliferate. And it's hard to understand what they're doing because you don't want to villainize it. Um, In a way, it's very natural for people, say, with business ties in China to Mm -hmm. try to, you know, hobnob with Chinese embassies and try to support them. And then when I do report on some of these activities, like, you know, the potential vote buying and interference in elections, people use it as an excuse to say that, oh, everyone's like that. All recent immigrants are working for the CCP. And that just puts a lot of uh, reporters and researchers in these really tricky situations where you want to report on what's going on. But because the discourse just fails to be nuanced enough, people just kind of take it as a reason to be more hostile and and to not really um, open up their minds that there's a diversity of opinions among Chinese people and the Chinese diaspora. And, and it's also hard, I think, because so much of it happens in uh, Mandarin or another uh, Chinese dialect, right? So, so it's just mm-hmm. it really most people who don't speak the language have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. But like, it's been such like a rich field of potential reporting for me, like going back to Canada, like it's really, really interesting. Um, and I have been able to do all, like all of these reports that I have been able to translate these posts into English for audiences who have been found it really interesting. But I would argue that it's not actually that hard because there are so many Chinese speakers all over the world. It's not like it's a niche population, like a small population. And one of these stories were a Steve Bannon and Miles Quark's like cultish group was, uh, you know, protesting outside a Canadian journalist's house, accusing him of being a Chinese spy when he was actually critical of Beijing. There were death threats. And they did that with a bunch of people in America, too. They, they, they had a whole program yeah. of, of, of targeting yeah, people. New Jersey. Who were, yeah. Yeah. So in that case, so in in Texas, you know, with Pastor Bob Fu, he was one of the targets um, at the FBI came in, the bomb squad, you know, they put him and his family in a safe house. But in Canada, uh, police kind of just monitored it, kind of checked in once in a while. And I actually sent them videos like this looks like a death threat. And I um, actually, me and my colleagues, we translated some of this information like on and then we posted it, you know, on YouTube to kind of explain what was going on. But then it took um, three months later of this going on in Canada, two of these protesters just savagely beat one of the target's friends. And police was like, they were responding to questions like, why didn't you step in earlier? There were death threats. They admitted that they were slow with the investigation because they didn't have Chinese language resources. And that doesn't make sense really in Vancouver (laughs) when there are so many people of Chinese descent. It's not hard to find someone to look at something and translate it and to understand it. So I think um, like in the conclusion of my book, one of the points I make is that information in Chinese language is kind of treated like a secret code that can't be cracked. And so instead people like, you know, Newt Gingrich and others kind of just make things up or, you know, in his book, Newt Gingrich, like, I don't quite remember, but he just provided like nonsensical translations of Chinese words and then extrapolated a whole bunch of like theories about China based on that. 
which is, you know, insulting to all of the people, not just of Chinese descent, but people like you who have taken the time to learn Mandarin yeah. and to understand China. There, there's a lot of that here in the U.S. I don't know how much it exists in other countries, but certainly the sort of taking stuff out of context or just crappy language skills. And then, like you said, extrapolating mm -hmm. something much, much bigger mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. darker and nefarious than in many, some cases, many cases that it actually is for sure. Yeah. And in the U.S., people tell me that they do have, you know, Chinese speakers, but lower down in the chain who provide reports and information. But then going up the chain, the politicians, you know, the pundits, they pick and choose that information to support what they believe already. So it ends up like these researchers feel like they're not even being heard because they're just politicians are grabbing what they want anyways. And in many cases, people of Chinese descent are worried about even going to China or talking about their family in China because they're not going to get promoted to more influential positions. They're not going to get security clearance because the assumption is that if you have, you know, any sort of China ties that you you might be compromised. And, and that's a very like pernicious trend in D.C. <laughs> when I moved back to D.C. after 10 years, I, I had no interest in working for the government and you know, I never had, yeah. had no interest. But I was <laughs> I had a funny conversation with somebody who does have a security clearance who said, you know, don't even bother to apply. You'll never get a security clearance because you lived in China for too long. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, that, that's that's fine. There are reasons for governments to be concerned about people with ties to other foreign governments, but it is Anyway, different different topic, but it's certainly, I think, certainly for folks of of, of Chinese descent, it's it's much more pernicious, and mm -hmm. it, it does seem like in many places that the assumption is that you're potentially at risk of compromise. One of the problems, though, right, is how people's families are being leveraged back in China. I mean, you mm -hmm. see it, you see it in the way that you know the persecution of the Uyghurs and Tibetans, but you see it also in Han Chinese, right? People who are doing things that are considered controversial or anti-China outside of China, it, it's a very common tactic, right? To harass, yeah. hassle, otherwise make life difficult for family members back in China, right? Yeah, there's no like solution to that. Like I try to spotlight a lot of these voices in the book. I spoke with people like Vicky Shu, like, you know, mm -hmm. the campaign against her has just been ridiculous. Like people made fake porn of her, you know, thousands of accounts were basically attacking her, doxing her. And I feel like that story didn't get as much attention as maybe it should have, the way she was just so mm -hmm. brutally targeted by a very, I mean, very obviously state-backed campaign. Yeah, very personal. Um, and, you know, they started with her family, like she's been open about that, about her, how her family and parents have been pressured. Um, but she didn't stop her work, so then they went further like they sent you know thousands of accounts and they they made fake pornography about her so that when people google or search in chinese that's that's what comes up and trying to completely smear her character but you know yeah that story did not get that much attention well this is this is because of her work at at the um at aspie down in australia right specifically around yeah, xinjiang so or xinjiang yeah. I think she's one of the main researchers in Australia that focus on Xinjiang and Uyghur issues, looking at less supply chains, looking at forced labor and where internment camps are. Um, like she recently, she found a trove of police documents about the repression. And, you know, because of her fluent Chinese and like her networks was able to find this and uh, provide this information. So, 
yeah, people like her, I think Beijing wants the most to silence and has the means and leverage to try to do so. Um, I think she's unique in that she continues to do this work. We're not sure for how long because, you know, you have to wonder like how long someone can take this. Right. But most people, more people that I know of are either operating like anonymously, like they're providing kind of really subtle, you know, advising roles to governments in a very, very anonymous manner because they're worried about their families um, or they're writing under pseudonyms and don't get a lot of attention because no one knows who they are. Yeah, but they're worried about not even like access. I think a lot of researchers worry about being able to go back to China at different levels, people who are worried about the safety of themselves and their family members. And their family members. So, so, I mean, just given the trajectory of China under Xi Jinping, that does this, is there any reason to think this is going to get better or, or are, are we sort of more close to the beginning of sort of where this trajectory goes? I think we're kind of at a pivotal point and a lot of it is not just, you know, waiting for what Beijing does, but there's a responsibility on Western countries to at least be smarter about China and to have proper expertise in place in their governments to try to really even have some sort of well thought out policy on these issues. You know, in the U.S. cabinet, very little China experience. And like we talked about, the people with experience are kind of, they have trouble <laughs> having mm. influence. And in Canada, um, the mood after the Michaels returned and the Mung case was re resolved is that they really want to go back to business as usual, to not have any kind of plan in place on how to prevent Canadian hostages from being taken in the future. The prime minister's office is really steering this, even though other parts of government were like, we need some sort of plan. We need some sort of, you know, update um, to foreign policy in general. There is very little political will. I think the amount of criticism in, you know, different countries' media doesn't reflect the lack of political will of governments to even put like the basic structures in place to um, understand China better, to be able to translate basic things from Chinese into English that they need to be aware of. And in Canada, wh why do you think that is? I mean, especially I mean, given one, the, the sort of the, the diversity of Canada and the number of, of people of, of Chinese descent in the country, but also what just happened over the last close to three years, why, why wouldn't the government sort of have had a, a bit more of a shift in views of how the relationship with China should go? Mm -hmm. I think it's related partly to what we were talking about before, where politicians are worried about stoking racism, uh, losing support from uh, Canadians of Chinese descent, you know, partly an election issue. And I think traditionally in Canada, the main government advisors on China have been people in the business world who do have a vested interest in um, making sure that, you know, tensions are as low as possible um, to facilitate, you know, smoother, you know, right. business interactions. But, you know, that's also not even the case where if you, I think an idea of um, the West has been, you know, reform through trade through interactions economically, China will naturally liberalize, liberalize become more democratic. Um, but in recent years, we've seen the political tensions move over to economic coercion, economic retaliation, not just from China, but back and forth. So America, Australia, other countries have also kind of did like tit for tat trade tariffs, different ways where the political situation can impact the economic relationships. 
So it's not even necessarily the case that just by focusing on business that everything will be all good. Um, I think a lot of politicians are kind of trying to put their heads in the sand about that and not trying to understand the really complex situation unfolding. Um, And Canadians are on the whole, you know, survey show like pretty frustrated about the situation of inaction and just passiveness that they see from Ottawa. Well, I guess the Huawei decision will be will be interesting whether or not the Huawei is allowed into the Canadian 5G network construction. I mean, certainly here in DC, there's all the factors you talk about, and there's there's you know there's a lot of opportunity for lobbyists from various industries and companies mm-hmm. to sort of shift Biden administration and Capitol Hill thinking to policies that are more likely to make the money dealing with China. And and that certainly has a, an impact on the policies. Um, so just shifting gears quickly, because we're almost out of time, and this has been a really great conversation. You know, one of the things we're talking about is sort of lifting up and, and getting more diversity of voices. Can you can you tell the listeners about new voices and what, what you helped create there? I find that to be a really, yeah. uh, really wonderful and useful project that's been up for a couple of years now, or is it even three years? Time has time sort of blended away with the pandemic, right? Yeah. So actually, we were founded in 2017 in Beijing. So it's almost up to five years. And it's been like a daily, like just kind of passion project and community for me we kind of like wanted to create a more open and accepting China space, both in person with events and chapters around the world and also virtually. And, you know, it started in reaction to um, often with panels and, you know, book deals, the people who get platformed on China are often white male experts, you know, no offense to yourself. (laughs) No, no, I I get it. I mean, I, I, I get it. Yeah. And, you know, you're one of our, you know, longtime supporters and our patrons. And, um, we've spoken about how this kind of helps to create like a better world, like for your kids, for your daughters, because we want to remove any excuses that people have for not Mm -hmm. even having like one woman on their panel you know, five years ago, people just kept saying to us and our co-founders that we tried to find a female expert, but we couldn't find one or we couldn't find a woman on this topic, which is ridiculous because, you know, looking around, actually the people we know, I actually see more women than men, you know, entering these fields, like definitely being journalists on China, there's more women than men and women who can speak Chinese and, you know, and doing great work. So we created this open source directory. Now it has more than 600 people all around the world who are women or non-binary on all sorts of topics and speaking all sorts of languages and in all time zones. So I think just that project alone helped to remove those excuses. Basically, anytime someone makes an excuse, an excuse we couldn't find a woman, someone just has to send that person the link to this right. directory and then No, no more excuses. Um, And on top of that, we have a twice monthly podcast, uh, which I co-host sometimes and events uh, all around the world and basically social groups and networks and all sorts of platforms so that people, you know, can benefit from this supportive atmosphere where we're really trying to celebrate diverse voices on China, experts on China and women like tend to, because they're so, you know, facing so much discrimination that women experts often have to fight harder to provide like unique insights and reporting. So kind of like the quality you get just reaching out to like any female expert in China, it's a pretty good bet on more like 
fresh and interesting perspectives. Um, and definitely I found that case, the case with my book because, you know, I tried to practice what I preached and most of my sources are, you know, coming from diverse backgrounds and women and minorities. Uh, I shouldn't even use the word minorities, um, people who aren't white basically <laughs> in each country. And I think that provides like a different layer than people who enjoy positions of more power in those countries who might not see some of the more, you know, uglier sides or the more complicated sides because, you know, that's their life experience. They're not getting like the five-star treatment when they go to China that a lot of <laughs> people in power do. Right. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the, one of the, the things I enjoy about your book is it does have these different perspectives that are, are so important as we are all trying to sort of figure out, you know, what's going on and, and, and start thinking about what we can do. Um, specifically new voices. I mean, I was I was just looking at the directory last week. I think it's like 620 entries or something because I'm certainly planning to uh, mine it for guests for the podcast. It's a really tremendous resource and I will put a link to it in the uh, show notes when we publish the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add or say to the audience other than buy her book, China Unbound? Is a, it's a great <laughs> book. Please go ahead and go buy it and read it. It's a great book. Yeah. Um, like just, asking yourself like you being based in the U.S. like what are the best avenues for more productive conversations on China like instead of going to you know people who are more simplistic like what are some resources you'd recommend including you know of course your newsletter in that community but where who's doing the work to you know make up more in well-informed approaches so publicly, that's a great question. And I'm not actually sure I have a I have a good answer. I, I'm struggling with that. And part of it may be that I'm based in D.C. where it, it is quite it's it's difficult to be in D.C. and to be not hawkish about China. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, if, if you want to get a you know, if you want to get ahead in, in certain parts of the government here. And so, you know, I'm not actually I'm not actually sure. I, I know that there you know, Twitter, there's China Twitter, which is, I mean, Twitter in general is just kind of a cesspool. And China Twitter is not a productive or constructive place for discourse about anything. I don't know. I actually, I wish I had a better answer for you. So I need to think about more. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have any guesses or any suggestions? Well, I just, I was expecting more like simplified reaction to my book, but actually all the events I've been doing so far, like conversations with academics and fellow, you know, reporters, have been really nuanced. And it seems like there's a hunger for people who want to admit that there are no simple solutions and to talk about that. But it doesn't seem like there's a particular space or like a think tank that has more of that approach. It seems... Yeah, the, the think tanks probably aren't the place. I mean, there are other... You know, I know the, guy, the folks at SupChina are trying to do that. I don't know if they're... You know, they, I don't know if you've talked to them. You know, Kaiser, Kaiser's got his podcast and they do their conference. I think their conference is, yeah. we're recording on the 1st of November. So I think they're, it's, I think in mm-hmm. next week, but in general, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's also like, like anything, it's hard to have a more sort of textured or uh, kind of a deeper discussion in, in, in these sort of 30 minute chunks or when you're sitting on a panel um, and so I don't know. I think it's it's just putting in the time and having having you know like like you're doing. You're talking to me. I know you're you're talking to lots of people for your book. And um, this is a topic I think that has probably come up in most of your conversations. And mm-hmm. you know it's 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 just something something we're going to have to keep talking about. I know over the next few months there are at least two more books that are coming out um, about uh, sort of China's influence in the world. And so 
it'll be interesting to see where those go in terms of sort of how they impact or, or move the discourse and, and how those get yeah. played. And again, I think it's, like I said, I know you feel the same way. I mean, struggling with how do you address these issues that are very significant and real, right? Influence interference without going sort of overboard and over-exaggerating and destroying innocent people's lives, which I think has yeah. already happened and is a, is a, continues to be a, a big risk. Yeah. And I do think a simple answer is that people need to pay better attention and not just to get a shallow understanding, but to really understand the nitty gritty and try to untangle the complexities um, and to look out and support um, the people who are trying to do this work. A lot of their names are in my book. If you don't want to buy it, like flip to the back <laughs> of the notes and, you know, get their names, like look up those articles. And people like Yang Yang Chung, uh, Helen Gao, like people with um, who are straddling both worlds, Chinese, Western, and because of, you know, those real lived experiences, their perspectives are just naturally very nuanced and insightful, I think. So, you know, people are doing this work. It's just that sometimes they're not the ones on CNN and getting book deals because of, you know, structures of power. So, you know, maybe support new, new voices. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I like you said, I'm a I'm a supporter of new voices. It's a it's a very happy to. And I'll put a link to that as well. I think um Support you through Patreon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have it. We should move you over to Substack. Sub, <laughs> Substack is better, but that's a different different discussion. Um, that you, my, that's my bias. Well, look, thank you so much. It's it's really been a pleasure to uh, speak with you, and I hope that you listeners, uh, many of you, will go out and buy the book. It's it's really a worthwhile read, and Joanna really has, you know, great reporting, great perspectives, and this book is a really important contribution to the conversation. I think we all need to be having about. China and the future and China's role in the world. So thank you and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your work, like, you know, really platforming those more quality, well-informed sources in China that you've done for the newsletter for for a long time. So I think that makes a big difference as well because you use your expertise to point people to credible, good sources. So also subscribe to your newsletter. Well, thank you. You have been listening to the Cynicism Podcast by Bill Bishop, author of the Cynicism Newsletter. You can read more about this and other episodes as well as sign up for the newsletter at cynicism.com. That is S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a positive review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help. Thanks to Seven Morris for his editing help and to you for listening.